as soon as they, oh, it is up. Good. You guys are good. There's no shadows behind there or anything. So I think what we'll do is uh, have a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll, we'll begin. Father, this, this evening, as we um, just spend this time together, God, I pray that our, our hearts will be prepared to hear what you have to say, not what I have to say. It's not about me. It's not about this church. It's about your word and how you want to change lives to make us more conformed to your image every day. So Lord, I pray that you'll take the words that, that you've given me to say and use them to speak into the hearts and lives of our people here. In Jesus' name, amen. You've heard the phrase, uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Where did that originate from? There's different schools of thought. One is Hillel, he's a, a Hebrew rabbi. He came up with the phrase, do not do to thy neighbor what is hateful to thyself. Then Socrates, the Greek philosopher, he said, what stirs your anger when done to you by others, that do not do to others. Confucius, the Chinese wise man, said that, that what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. But Jesus said, Think of something good you wish someone would do for you, then do it for someone else. That statement is from Luke chapter 6, verse 31, which says, as you wish that others would do for you, do so to them. So tonight as we look at that, you'll notice that, that the other scholars, the three scholars that I mentioned, Hillel, Socrates, and Confucius, their approach to this philosophy was from the negative. Don't, do not do this. Do not do that. Where Jesus, on the other hand, his approach was positive. He said, think about what is good that you would like someone to do to you and then do that to someone else first. Don't wait for someone to do it to you. Their rules were negative and passive and Jesus' rules were positive and active. In essence... These wise men said, avoid doing to others what you don't want done to yourself, where Jesus said, you have greater power within you, and you have the ability to show love to others even if they don't show it in return to you. So that's a radical thinking, what the world comes up with from what Jesus says. So what is our title of our message? This series is Alien Invasions. We come in peace tonight. I want to look at alien invasions, what's love got to do with it? What's love got to do with it? I wanted to have the song playing in the background, but it's uh, very not appropriate for a church setting. So each week we're going to be looking through this series, we're going to be looking at three points. First is our identity. The second is our mindset. And thirdly, we're going to look at our conduct. And so as we come into these verses, we got, our, we got that outline from the verses we looked at last week in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 12, which say, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. 
You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God as on the day of visitation. So last week we had the kickoff and, and Pastor Tim gave a great message. I had so many positive comments and, and people saying, man, that was powerful. I hope I don't disappoint you today, but uh, we're going to move into one of those aspects. We're going to cover seven aspects of what it looks like to be aliens and strangers in a world. And so our, our verses that we're going to look at tonight are found in John. So if you want to turn to John, we're going to spend... Uh, some time tearing these verses apart in John 13 verses 34 and 35 which say a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another this is a beautiful passage when we think about being different in the world because the world has a way of loving what makes us any different so first thing we're going to look at is our identity and when we we tear this verse we're going to start at the back end of the verses in verse 35 it says by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love have love for one another this is our identity this is what people look at and they see these people are different our identity is marked by the way we love each other. There's a New Testament commentary uh, that I have. It's by Holman, and he says this. Verse 35 can be identified as the key verse of this chapter. Listen to this. God allows the world to judge whether people are truly Jesus' disciples by the way they behave toward one another. Do you hear that? That is so key, that God allows the world to judge whether we, the people, uh, that claim to the name of Jesus are his disciples by the way we behave toward one another. Another commentator wrote, the measure in which Christian people fail in love to each other is the measure in which the world does not believe in them or their Christianity. It is the final test of discipleship, according to Jesus. As I was preparing for this message, Helen and I were talking and and looking at this area of love and, and what it looks like and what it doesn't look like. And as we wrestled through this thought, we came up to the conclusion that as far as we know, as far as we know, they're, they're, I, I, we haven't found it, that whenever you read about God's love, it is always in regards to relationships. Always in regards to relationship. God loved and he gave. He loves, therefore, he disciplines. He loves us, so we in turn are to love others and love him. The key passage that brings our identity into uh, a clear focus is in 1 John 4, verses 7 through 11, which say this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love, and in this the love of God is made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world 
so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love others. That's what our identity is. Because God loves us, we are then to love others. Our identity is marked by this, that God first loved us, therefore we need to love others. Now you've heard the old saying, don't be one who loves things and uses people, but be someone who loves people and uses things. And that is, that is important to remember that, because that is the opposite of the world. We love things, so we use people to get what we want, where God is saying, no, forget that. I want you to love people and use things to get to people, things that will draw people to you. Okay? Whenever you read in the Bible, you'll notice that, that any time that it talks about loving anything besides the Lord or others, it's always in the negative. I was looking through it, I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. In 1 John chapter 2, we read, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, are you ready for this? Okay. Growing up in a large family, there is things, I would be walking down the street, these are my brothers and sisters. And people would come up to me, total strangers would come up to me and say to me, are you a Van Summeren? Hey, how did you know? I never met you before. It's by the way I walked, by the way I talked, and what I looked like. I looked like my family. I walked, talked, and looked like my parents and my siblings. Our identity should be a reflection of our Heavenly Father. We should walk, talk, and look like Him. That, that will reflect in the way that we love others. That's our identity. So number two is our mindset. Our mindset, back to John 13, verse 34 says, Just as I have loved you, okay, we have our identity because uh, we're, we're, we're to look like Christ in the way he loved others. And, and then now he says, our mindset be, since God loves us, you also are to love one another. In order uh, to have a proper understanding of what this mindset looks like, we need to look at, at, at some other verses that go along and point us in that direction. We should be asking the question, how did God love? How does God show his love? In Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And that's what it would look like, giving ourselves up. Let's dig deeper into that. And uh, how do we imitate? What does it mean to imitate or to pursue after? In 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 to 18, I'm reading this out of the NIV. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. <laughs> we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. 
If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. That sums up. That's what our mindset should be. We don't love just by what we say, but what we do, our actions. And John 3.16 says that because God loved us so much, what did he do? He gave his only son that we could have eternal life. So he loved and he gave. This is our mindset, that we love and so we give. We love, so we in turn love other people. We love God, we show it to other people. Our mindset should be our prayer. God, as we learn more about your love for me, please help me to take on that trait and be more and more like you. That's what we need to pray. Please help me to take on that trait and be more and more like you. So when we read verses like this, that we are to love others just as God loves us, what does that look like, and how can we add this to our life? That brings us to our third point where we're going to spend the majority of our time, our conduct. And one thing I want you to remember that, that Jesus, his desire is to possess us, not to be a possession. Oh yes, I have Jesus in my heart. He's my genie. When I pray, he helps me. No, he wants to possess us. He wants to be in control of our lives. So as we go into this next thing, our conduct, we're going to be looking at this in a way that, God, you know what? I can't do this on my own. You have to do it. You have to possess me. You have to live in me and allow me to live out this life to other people. So back to John 13, verse 34. The first verse, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. This is the new commandment. This is what he wants us to do. This is what he says, this is how I want you to live your life. If we are to be imitators of Christ, what exactly was his conduct and how did he live? Now, John 14, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, let not your hearts be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me. And about talking about our eternal home and about our security and about the Holy Spirit coming. And, but the last verse he says in, in 14, 31 uh, 30 and 31, he says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the rulers of this world is the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. See, here, here was Satan coming. Satan was thinking he's defeating Satan, he's gonna have this power over him, but he says, No, he really has no authority but I'm walking in obedience to my father. And so I am sacrificing my life. And he's thinking he's getting victory, but he's not. Jesus loved his father and he obeyed him. Jesus loved his father and he trusted him. We are to do the same. Living, living a life that mirrors um, that of Christ and walking in obedience to his will is not easy at all. It's one of the hardest things you have to do because the world around us is telling me, telling all of us, hey, this is what you, you need to have this now. You need to have yourself satisfied. You need to have this. You need to have that. And we buy into that. But God's saying, you know what? I've got something else for you. It takes sacrifice and a willingness to lay down our lives. 
the world loves. We see it all the time on TV and in the movies. But their love, the world's love, is very self-seeking, selfish. And it's saying, what do I need now? What will make me happy? And, and how, can, how can I be satisfied? That's what the world is, is, is craving. That's what the world is craving and asking for contentment, happiness, and, and, and a, a peace. And they think they can get it by self-seeking and being selfish and wanting what satisfies them. But God's saying, you know what? I've got this new commandment. You'll remember that in Matthew chapter 22, it's on the, on the, on the screen, it says, in 36 to 39, Jesus approached by the Pharisees and asked, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's where we're going. But here in this verse that we're looking at in, in, in our key verse for this evening, this, this verse for today is that here is that we're looking at the word new command. He gives us a new command. And another word for new is a, in the translation, is a fresh perspective. It's not something different, out of the, uh, something totally different, but it's a fresh approach to what I told you to do, to love, love your neighbor as yourself. So as we look at this, Jesus keeps trying uh, to help us as believers to see that if we want to be unique in the world, if we want to be those aliens and strangers that people look at and say, wow, there's something different about this guy. There's something different about this girl. Look at this couple, how they treat each other. Look at this church, how they treat each other in, in the body of Christ. If we want that, then we have to view it from this new perspective, this new commandment that Jesus gives us. He's now teaching that if they want to be pleasing to the Lord, they need to learn to love their fellow believers better. The greatest passage that I, I see in how that we are to love one another, you hear it read at weddings all the time, 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to spend the last part of, of our time together looking, looking at that. Paul opens this chapter, if you want to turn to that, because you might want to underline a few things in there. So as we look at this today, Paul opens the chapter by talking about five hot topics that were going on in the church at that time. Even today, these still cause a lot of trouble in the church. Paul was speaking hypothetically as he laid this out here. But this is what he mentions. He said, I may, may be able to speak in tongues. I may be able to prophesy with all understanding and knowledge, have all the faith in the world, give away all that I have, and offer up my body to be burned. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I've gained nothing, is what he's saying in those first few verses. So if our purpose is to bring glory to God on this earth, in all that we are and all that we do, then love is to be genuine and pure. That's what he's saying to us today. So how do we demonstrate that love to others is of utmost importance. So let's read those verses, verses 4 
through 7, it says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So as we look at these, there's 13 of them. You have space in, in your bulletin to write the 13 down, maybe make a little note. But it's, it's uh, something you can dig into later when it talks about love. First thing is love is patient. Love is patient. It's not indifferent. It's, it's not talking about being indifferent to things going around you, but it's long-suffering, and it doesn't respond immediately to wrongs done against you. Do you guys see the difference? We're not just... It's bearing with an offense. It's not indifference or ignoring it altogether. God is our example, and we see this when he was sinned against. He, didn't, he doesn't mete out punishment right away, but he gives us an opportunity to repent and come back to him. Now, we have some good friends in Chicago, and when our oldest daughter was going to be married, we were struggling. She was not walking with the Lord at the time, and she was marrying a guy we did not believe was a Christian. And my daughter, um, as a young child, professed faith. She was baptized in the uh, Gulf of Siam, and, and so I, we, we were confident that she was a believer, but at that time she was not walking with the Lord. So we were sharing this with a friend of ours in Chicago, and he said to us, he said to Helen, I said, how can you even participate in this wedding? They're unequally yoked. They're, they're not, you know, how could you even go to the wedding? And as we, we thought about that after the fact, we thought, you know what? That's not how God deals with us. If God dealt with us that way, how many of us would still be around? It would, it would not be good. And so as, as we, she knew that we did not agree with this marriage, but she was uh, 24 years old, or 23 years old. She was an adult, and she was making up her mind. She was convinced that he was the one, and, and so we didn't uh, give them our wholehearted blessing, but we attended. I gave her away, and um, a couple years down the road, it ended up in divorce. The thing is, we didn't give up on her, just like God does not give up on us. And today, if you were, to, you, if you were at my birthday party, most of you don't know who I am, so you weren't at my birthday party. But um, if you were there, you would have seen all four of my children getting up and singing my praises. You know, it was like a best dad in the world type scenario that they all say when it's your birthday. Um, but it was, she was one of them. And to see her now compared to what she was back then, totally different. It's being patient. Love is patient. Love continues to show love despite what is going on around you. Despite the bad decisions that they're making, we don't give up on our children. We don't give up on, on others. We're going to see that again in a few minutes. We're not going to, God doesn't give up on us. He pursues us. And that's what we need to do with, uh, with other people. So being patient with her is truly paid off uh, in, through the situation and, and, and everything. Next thing is that, that love is kind. Kindness is, can take on many forms. 
but generally it's being soft and gentle. And, but occasionally, however, kindness must take on the form of a, of a careful rebuke, rebuke designed to bring about a good result. Paul demonstrated that when, when he was talking. He dealt kindly but firmly with the Corinthians when they were allowing sin to reign in the church. That's being firm but loving. He was being kind. We show kindness by doing something for someone that other people don't even think about or wouldn't want to take the time to do. For example, by going out of your way to visit someone who's been, who is sick in the hospital, by taking a meal over to someone, a uh, family who may have just had a new baby or they, they just had an operation or something, by helping with some yard work when uh, someone you know is struggling with their health or they're just not able to, to afford it or whatever, that, that we, we show our kindness by that. We show uh, uh, kindness by not doing things sometimes. I've done this before. Someone comes up and asks me for some money. I said, I need groceries. You know, I don't have any money for groceries. And you know very well that they're probably going to take that money and go buy booze or drugs. And so you don't give it to them. It's showing kindness. But what do you do instead? You say, oh, you need food? Let's go, let's go to the store. I'll buy you a bag of groceries. You need some meat to, in order to, to feed your family? I'll buy it for you. And, and nine times out of ten, if that's not the reason that they wanted to borrow the money, they'll say, oh, no, it's okay. I'll go to the food pantry. But if they really are in need, they'll take you up on that. And that's a way that you can show kindness without, um, without feeding into their addictions. The thing that is, is important to remember is that kindness it's not weakness. It's not, it's not being timid. It's not allowing people to walk all over us and to use us, but it is responding with wisdom and the Holy Spirit's guidance in, in to answer them in a way that will bring glory to God without harshness. So it takes on many forms, but it's always coming back to the grace of God. It's always coming back to how we can be kind. Next is love does not boast. The word boast appears only one time in the New Testament. In this, in this verse, it says that it means to brag without foundation. Now, I think this is one of the greatest problems in the church. And we all want to talk about ourselves, our own accomplishments. We all want to express how we feel. And um, it you know, also can mean to exalt ourselves over another as if our accomplishments were based on our own merits and abilities. I know that you know people that when you get together with them, all they want to do is talk about themselves and, and all their accomplishments and all that they do and all that they want and all that they need. And what happens? <laughs> it becomes very painful time to be together. And, and they don't even see it. They're excited to be able to talk. It takes a lot of patience. It, but love does not boast. And there are numbers of you I know in our congregation who do show a genuine interest in the lives of other people. People, Many people will come up and they, they, they knew that my grandson was sick or something like that. And they'll come up and they say, hey, I've been praying for your grandson. How is he doing? But there's also people who will say, all they want to do is just talk about themselves, their own issues. And, and just lastly in this point here is that when you've heard the saying that God gave us 
two ears and one mouth, we need to listen as twice as much as we talk. And that would be a, a good thing to, to remember. Okay, next, uh, bear with me through these things. We're going to cover these things really quick. Oh, I still got time yet. All right, love is not proud. Pride is a real love killer, isn't it? To be proud is to be overly confident or insubordinate to God or others. The world is always trying to prove that they don't need God. Am I right? If you saw the movie, God's Not Dead Too, you'll see this, how they are trying to put, pull Jesus out of the schools and, and all these things, and, and that we don't need God. We are self-sufficient. We are proud people. But what does that look like? in our world. One of my favorite football players, all-time football players, Barry Sanders. Not because he's on my favorite football team, the Detroit Lions, but just because who he was. If he would have played one more season of football, 11th se his 11th season, he would have surpassed the all-time yardage record. I, as far as I know, he is the only running back in the history of the NFL that every season he played football he ran 1,000 yards. I, I could be wrong, but I looked up some stats in it that looked like he was the only one that ran over 1,000 yards in all 10 seasons that he played. That includes his rookie season. That includes the, the game that he only played 11 games. He missed six, five games because of injury, but yet he still gained 1,000 yards that season. He's amazing. When you watch him run, it's like, how did he do that? It's a, it's a, humans can't do, make those moves. Maybe a deer could, but not a human. But he was amazing to watch. But if you ever watched him on the sideline or off the field, the most humble guy, when he would score a touchdown, you didn't see him dancing some jig or something like that. He just set the ball down or handed it to the ref and went to the sideline. That's the way he was. He was just a very humble man. Two coaches that I really respect, Tom Landry and, and um, Tony Dungy. And these two guys, when you watch them on the sidelines, they're not raising their voices. They weren't arguing with the refs all the time. They were humble men. I respected them. And the, and the unique thing about all three of these guys is they love the Lord. If you put that together, look, being not proud, being humble, you see these people in, in high places who are showing the humility of God. And who are we that we have anything to brag about? So as we show love to other people, we do it with humility and not with pride. God gives grace to the humble, but he brings the proud down. As the world looks and judges us by how we love each other, do we do it with humility and with with humbleness. That will speak loudly to the world. Next is, love is not rude. The meaning of rude here is that this is a word that we don't really think about a lot in our, our culture, but we should. It's a disregard, this is what the word means, it's a disregard for the social customs that others have adopted. For example, we lived in Thailand so if you walk into a house of a Thai person, you always take your shoes off. You take your shoes off, it's a thing of respect for the house. If you don't, you're just really rude. And I've seen people, and, and they won't say anything. You walk in their house with the, your shoes on, they're not going to say anything, but you get the looks. 
And if you don't know what you're, what, what you're doing, you'll really offend people. You would never hand money. When we first went to Thailand, you would never hand money with your left hand. You would always hand it with your right hand and with your left hand left on your elbow. You would always hand the money that way. Because your left hand is considered your dirty hand. And you don't want to disrespect the king whose face is on that coin or on that, on that bill. So you would learn to respect their culture. You would learn to not be rude by doing things the right way. And the other thing that um, you would never do is you would never accept an invitation to dinner the first time they asked you. you would, they would have to say, hey, why don't you stay for dinner? We got enough. And you say, no, no, thanks. I, I, I've got stuff at home. No, no, we insist. You stay. After the third time, you know they're serious and that you can accept their invitation. Otherwise, they're just being polite. And it would be rude for you to accept it on the first time. So how, what does that apply to us? What does that apply to the word of God here? We need to be sensitive to our fellow believers. You may have a habit. You may, have, uh, you may enjoy a, a wine with your, your evening dinner. Evening. Fine. But what if somebody's over at your house who has struggled with alcoholism and you offer them wine? What are they thinking? Is he trying to get me drunk? Is he trying to cause me to go back into my alcoholism again? We need to be, treat people so that we're not being rude to them by doing something that would cause offense. We have lots of verses that talk about being an offense to people or an, a stumbling block. And that, that's one area that we need to be considerate of. And, and so just things like that, to be, not be rude. So love does not insist on its own way either. A loving person puts the needs of others ahead of their own. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, expresses this, how Jesus humbled himself by putting the salvation of others ahead of his own, his own needs and his own comfort and ease. He left the throne of glory, humbled himself, became a servant, became a man, and suffered on the cross for us. It's putting others first and my needs second. I see this in action during potluck suppers. You've all been to potluck dinners, and, and you know those who are, are wanting their own way. And in fact, Pastor Tim one time told us of a church split. What was it over? The little girl got a bigger piece of ham than he did. He's an elder. He should have had a bigger piece of ham. Church split after that, thinking of his own, own self. But let's not allow that to happen. Um, we need to keep in mind that um, when we're not insisting on our own way, we need to practice this, but we also need to be in, in, in reminded that we need to take care of ourselves also. There were times that Jesus himself went away for rest. We see that in Luke 5, 16. He says, it used to be burnout for Jesus in the past. He's not saying that. He's not saying that we need, we need we're not seeking our own way, that, but that doesn't mean that we have to be doing something 24-7 for Jesus. He expects us to have rest and be refreshed in ourselves. All right, a couple more. Love is not irritable. It is not easily angered. Someone who is a follower of Christ who, res who would respond to other believers without becoming irritated or angry, that's what we're looking for. That's what we need to see. So when I see folks in the church who are short-tempered, or get angrily, angry easily, what is that saying? 
that's not uh, the example. They're not living out God's example. The world is watching to see how we treat each other in the church. And by responding in anger to other believers, what are we doing? We're hindering the work of the Lord. Because the world is watching us and they're going to see this fight, this church is splitting. Because people around are watching. You, you, you see, you know everybody on TV who's going through divorces, who's, whose ministries are sunk because of, of doing uh, ungodly things or they're, they're had an affair or, or things like that. The world's watching. And that puts a big hindrance on the name of Christ when they see these church leaders, these churches who are splitting and becoming um, resentful toward each other. They're not irritable. They don't fight within themselves. Um, love is not resentful or it keeps no records of wrong. People who love others would never keep a meticulous record. This is what he's getting across here. A meticulous record of offenses committed by other people. They offer forgiveness time and again. They offer forgiveness. Both Jesus and Stephen demonstrated this type of love by forgiving the people who were putting them to death. They did. They showed that kind of love. They were not resentful. One word of caution, though, is that there, if there is a pattern, if there is a pattern of wrongdoing in someone's life in the church, he's not talking about that. He's talking about that we need to um, make note of that and deal with it and be dealt with it in love. We forgive a person who is displaying a broken and a contrite heart, but we lovingly, with deep concern, deal with the one who continues to live in sin. When it says, don't be resentful, we're not making a record of wrong and things like that, but if there is that sin, it needs to be dealt with. And we've done that, I think, pretty well here at Cornerstone. We see in, in, uh, in the Corinthians, when reports were written to Paul, he had to deal with the sin. There was no resentment, but he dealt with the sin. And those on the outside, they're going to be looking. They're going to be watching how we deal with it. Next is that, that love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. There's a movie that came out a number of years ago, The Italian Job. I don't know if you ever watched it. It was a pretty cool movie until you think about the premise of it. Here you have a group of thieves going and robbing a house with like $80 million of bullion in this big safe. They blow a hole in the floor and it comes down into the water. They, they load it into their, their boat and take off. As they were escaping, one of the thieves decides, I want all that money for myself. So he, he set up that when they were crossing this dam, they put up a blockade and they, they stole all the money. Well, so the rest of the movie, I'm spoiling it for you because the premise is not a very good movie. The premise is, the whole rest of the movie is these five or six other criminals wanting to get their, their money back from this other criminal. That's the whole thing about this movie. I am a sick man because I like that movie. And, and as, as you think about it, I should have been wishing that the police would catch all of them and put them all away for stealing in the first place. But we found ourselves rooting for the bad guys to chase after more bad guys. And, and, um, and so this was what he's saying here. It says we don't rejoice in wrongdoings, but we rejoice in the truth. Well, in the church, if we rejoice in someone's wrongdoing is to wish evil 
and punishment upon them. So what if someone comes up to you and is explaining how they were able to manipulate their taxes to enable themselves to get a bigger tax return? That they cheated on their taxes and manipulated them in such a way that they were able to get a bigger tax return. And we laugh right along with them. What are we saying? We're saying, oh, you cheated? Woohoo, good for you. No, Our, we should be coming to them and saying, listen, that's sinful. That's sinning. When, when God says to give Caesar what is Caesar's and give to the Lord what's his, you need to go back and reevaluate re what you're doing and, and do it right. Now, this applies in, in many areas. If somebody comes up and says, man, I got hammered last night. It was so cool. In the church, you're talking about that when it says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. We need to come alongside them. We don't rejoice in wrongdoings, but we rejoice in the truth. If those on the outside got wind of all these things, about our taxes or about drinking and things like that that are going on in the church, what a heyday they would have. I wouldn't want to go there. I could, if I want to cheat on my taxes, I don't have to be at a church and do it. I could do it at home. And, and all these things that just ruins our testimony. A couple more. Love bears all things. Many versions uh, translate this Greek word, it's stego, S-T-E-G-O, in many different ways. Uh, the most popular way is to protect. It also could mean to endure or to cover or to bear with. In the translation we're looking at, it says to bear, bears all things. So if Paul had in mind this concept of endurance or bearing up under, under things, that we, we need to love, it bears many differences and does not stop loving even under the strain of um, difficulties imposed by others. So how, what does that mean? I have the privilege of working at Cornerstone. We have a great staff and of men and women who are here at Cornerstone who believe, have, I believe, have the best interest of the church, best interest of God's, God's work at heart. This is what, what they are here for. But I don't always agree with everything, and sometimes uh, it's really hard to submit because I, I don't agree with that. And um, I'm not going to give you any examples because I don't want to incriminate myself. But anyways, but because we love each other, we are not going to allow things like this to come between us and hinder the work of the Lord. So we submit to one another. We're going to protect the power of the gospel and our witness to those that don't know the Lord. We might not agree with everything, but yet I've submitted to the fact I bear all things when I'm the lead pastor, which will never happen, I hope, uh, I can make my own rules. But uh, until that time comes, don't ask me. What is it Paul Ryan says? I am not going to be the president even if they ask me to. Uh, we'll see. All right. Love believes all things. Now, this doesn't mean that anything everybody says to me, uh, I'm going to believe. For example, did you guys know that uh, Jim Fenari was out smoking marijuana behind the dumpster the other night. Do you believe it? Can you believe that? If somebody were to came, <laughs> yes, who said that? <laughs> All right. If, if somebody were to come up and say that to me, I would say, hmm, let's go check with Jim. Have you asked him? 
if that is really true. And, and I, would, I would not believe it. I would doubt that that is something that he would do. And um, so I would try to find out the truth. But in, but in general practice, I have to take people's word, what they say, and give them the benefit of the doubt as much as possible and, and trust their good intentions in that. And so I'm believing in what people, I'm believing in people. I believe that, that God can change a life. I'm believing that, that they can grow in their faith. They might not be at a mature level right now and, and not living the way they should, but they can. So I'm believing God in them. I believe all things. Love hopes in all things. Loving someone requires that we maintain an optimistic outlook uh, on others in the church. Even in the midst of failure, we hold our hope that we, they will come around and repent. I could tell you story after story where this has, has been true. And I thought that they would never amount to much, but now are serving God and, and just really evidencing the work of God. I can, my daughter is one that we didn't give up on her. We hoped, we, we prayed for her. And, and now look at her, she's raising three children now and going to church and, and having devotions with her kids and all these things. It's, it's really neat to see what God has been doing. So don't give up. He's what he's saying. Don't give up on people. Don't just write them off and say, no, you're never going to amount to anything. He says, love others, especially in the church, that we need to hope that God is going to get a hold of them. We disciple them. We lead them. And, and we meet with them. Finally, finally, love endures all things. Love is easy when other person is always walking in the light and living a life that is pleasing to the Lord and that you like them. Those people are easy to love. But what about the one who's hard to love? And you know, you, if, do you have people that when their name comes up on their caller ID, oh, you sort of cringe, oh, not them again. What crisis now, you know? We all have those type of people. This, this is different than being patient. This is the meaning of a long-term perseverance, is the meaning of this word, that love endures all things. It's more long-term, and, and, and like that of Christ, where he endured the thick-headedness of his disciples. For, for three years, he worked with them, and he said one time, you know, toward the end of his, his time, he said, haven't you learned anything yet? He's being patient with them and teaching them and, and trying to instill um, the, the, the teaching, his, his passion for the world. So what, what does this all mean? When we close here, the final thought I have is that there is no way, there's no way that we can do this in our own strength. As we love the way, we have our, our, our identity. Our identity is, is found in Christ. We have our mindset. We have our mindset is to be like Christ and display that to the world. And our conduct, we looked at all these 13 different ways that we can have our conduct pleasing to the Lord, but there's no way that we can do this apart from the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. It all comes back to the gospel. It all comes back to the fact that I am at the foot of the cross. I am there pleading to God, God, I don't know how to love this person. I don't know how I can give myself to them anymore. I don't know how I can do this. But yet, God, you can give me the wisdom. You can give me the power. You can give me that love that I need 
to show this to other people, that I can be patient, I can be kind, I can be enduring, I can be loving and, and kind to these people, especially in the household of God. Because as the world, the, the most, the most uh, as people visit Cornerstone, the thing that I hear most is that when I came into Cornerstone, I felt welcomed. I felt that there is something here that I have never experienced before in other churches I've been in. That's a testimony to God's grace. That's a testimony to God taking that love. We're being aliens and strangers in this world because we're acting different than the world does. And as we do that, it's going to be a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. It's also going to be very attractive to the world. Amen? Amen. All right, let's... let's uh, I'm going to pray, and then the worship team is going to come back up, and we're going to sing a couple more songs before we leave. Let's pray.